Introducing Mortgage Matters. He has no idea how bad it is out there. He has no idea. A show dedicated to helping you navigate a challenging and ever-changing financial and real estate landscape. The economy continues to face numerous difficulties. Now, your hosts, Dan Podesto and Jason Grody of Central Coast Lending. The fact that you're being called upon to help clean up Wall Street's mess is an outrage. Broadcasting outrage. live from the KVEC studios in San Luis Obispo. What economy are you talking about? Talking it's about time for Mortgage Matters. Well, hello. Good morning, everybody. Welcome, welcome. It's already here, the uh, the second show of August. Hard to believe. Got some beautiful weather. It's been a fantastic week. Dan, how's your week? My week was really good. It's Excellent. Really good. Yep. I'm really happy to hear that. I was afraid that you might be a little bit like worn out. No, no. I'm. I mean, you know, always a little sleep deprived with two young ones, but yeah. Otherwise, feeling great. Nice. That's really good. What's new? Oh, you know, just living the dream. Living yeah. the dream here on the Central Coast. Nothing to look forward to. Um. I mean, there's always something to look forward to. <laughs> I feel like uh, there's an answer I'm supposed to be saying. That no, I'm, not I'm just saying. curious if you had any <laughs> big news or anything. No. Um, no. I wanted to. I wanted to. Uh, I was just kind of begging something out of you here. Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I really have anything great going on either. Okay. It's really all the same. There's a home show coming up. Was that a single clap or? A... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can clap like two or three times for the home show. <laughs> this one clap, that's awkward. There's a mosquito flying around. <laughs> I like your controlled enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah. So next, uh, next month here in Slow, there's a home show coming up. We're going to be there. Yeah, we're going to have a booth there. We're going to have two representatives from Central Coast Lending will be there. It's up in Paso, right? Well, yeah, there's there's a few coming, actually. August 29th and 30th are the one in Paso Robles, and then uh, Slow's home show is going to be on the 19th and 20th of September. Yeah. So you can get your full fix. Those are pretty cool to, to go and um, just get some home ideas if you're into home improvement or something. There's always I think new it's fun to walk and... around and see the new products. Yeah. Yeah. From things like those... Uh, the. Uh, retractable or magnetic screens or whatever yeah, just cool things like that yeah i bought one of those by the way from home depot did you yeah and then i installed it which wasn't too difficult but then i didn't like it i ended up taking it back it was too clunky and then there was like a that whatever that bug is is very into you 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 need to spray it with something yeah got this got the sweet blood here it looks like a fruit fly, maybe. It's flying kind of like a big, hmm. big fruit fly. So anyway, I put on the retractable screen. <laughs> now it's got you. And then there was a gap. Ah. And well, I, I put maybe it on. your door's not square. No, 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 no. <laughs> like at the top. And it was, the, it was an equal gap the entire way. Like it just didn't fit to the jam correctly. Hmm. So who wants to have... Uh, retractable screen with a one inch by 36 inch gap across the top and it's really just the the bedroom uh door screen too so that just wasn't going to work in north county you're pretty frustrated with that thing get it's it like it's right, right in there. my face get it, Gotta turn it. 
He's trying. He's trying to kill a fruit fly right now. You have the dump button ready. <laughs> oh, Paso Robles on the 29th and 30th. It's a great place to go check things out. Uh, most of the most everybody that can um, somehow or other associate themselves with the home end up there. Landscapers, roofers, contractors. There are mortgage people there. Um, but just all the different things, it's cool to walk around and you always get a swag bag. There's hundreds of vendors there and some of them have very elaborate booths. Yeah, I, I mean, know. they'll spend a week putting their stuff together. Anthony and Mike are doing something. I forget what they're doing. It's hard for a mortgage company to have an elaborate booth. I mean, I'm yeah. talking like the landscape companies where they actually set up a whole environment. Right. <laughs> a little, little mini ecosystem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's hard to uh, it's hard to do something like that for a mortgage company. Obviously, we can't go, you know, set up 30 years worth of payments right there in a tent. But um, you got to be serious. Right. Kind of nobody wants their financial guy to be too goofy. Uh, the people that listen to this show know me probably to be a little bit on the silly side, but but it's a weekend too. You got to be approachable. Weekend. You got to let your hair down. Yeah, right. You've got to be serious yet approachable. Got to let your financial hair down yet still be ready to mm-hmm. to get down to the business. Um, yeah. So hopefully we'll see you guys there. Well, I'm not going to see you there. I I probably won't be manning the booth, but uh, maybe walking around. I'm sure that I'll go check all that out. Oh boy. Dan was big day yesterday, huh? So big. The the old first Friday of the month day. Yeah. Yeah, it was the employment employment report Friday. Are you, you got to ex- come up with a better name than that. Yeah. yeah, something that starts with an F that can get that alliteration going on. Like full employment Friday. There we go. Fantastic Friday where we learn about full employment. Yeah. It doesn't sound that great, huh? It like comes from like the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, and then it's like the employment situation. But it's always a good indicator. Um, and the thing, I it actually is pretty timely when you consider it. I mean, they, they compile the previous month really in the first week of the month, and then during that period too, um, you get a revision of what was learned the prior month. Um, so... That always helps figure out, too, if we were too aggressive in the rounding up, I guess. <laughs> How does that work? Why do we need these revisions? Some Because they get it wrong. <laughs> some districts not reporting. Something, yeah. I'm not sure. Somebody was like, as they were tallying up the jobs created, just started rounding aggressively, and it turned out that that pattern didn't hold or something. I think that's weird. But uh, yeah, so anyways, we we got some revisions then. Um, what month are we now? We're in August, so we just got the reading of July and then saw the revisions of June. And June was actually even revised a little bit higher than it was last month. So As far as number of jobs added. Yeah. Yeah. So that's good news. Yeah. I, I like it when they underestimate these things because when they overestimate them, then, you know, market goes wild. Yeah. Yeah, there were 215,000 jobs added. It's something like the, I don't know, what are we on to, like 18 months in a row? Of... I think it's the most since like the Nixon campaign. <laughs> it's it's about a year and a half of, of job creation that exceeds 200,000 per month. Um, so that's a good number. And, and last month was revised higher to about 231. Um, so employment continues to be a bit of a... Of, 
I don't know. Are these numbers better than normal? Are they normal? Those are pretty good numbers. Um, you know, there there certainly isn't nothing wrong with getting 215,000 jobs together in a month. I saw them described as normal, which right now feels like it's better than that. Yeah. It feels better than normal. Well, you got to figure, I mean, the, the economy in the U.S., they say, employs 150 million people. So of those... Um, you know, we we do need to be creating jobs. I, I always hear this number, and I'm I'm reluctant really to to rely too much on it because I feel like it's kind of anecdotal. But I've heard that somewhere between a hundred and a hundred and fifty thousand jobs a month need to be created just to keep up with uh, the employment or the population growth component okay. of the economy. So when we're at two hundred, we're exceeding that. We're actually getting some. Yeah, you, Some other in theory, too. then you're whittling down that unemployment rate. Um, and so I always find it's interesting, too, is the, the predicting of it. It seems like, like it's something that's relatively difficult to predict. There, is, there are some indication, though, like that ADP um, payroll number. They've got, they've got an estimate that they put out usually the day before the jobs report and sometimes they're spot on sometimes they're way off but they're um, monitoring private employers only they're not they're not looking at the government sector which is what the bureau of labor statistics figure is looking at right so this this month uh, they were pretty close though i mean they predicted 185,000 jobs on their side so then we have 215 in the overall Oddly, though, this ADP number of 185 private jobs added to the economy in the month um, was the weakest since, I don't know, the weakest figure in about three months or so. Yeah, it's not been unusual to see that expectation or that number be published at something or 225, 250. I mean, we even had numbers that were pushing into the high 200s. So that is a little bit lackluster seeing it down at 185. There was a couple of other components of the job report, though, that um, remind us that things are doing okay. The unemployment rate was unchanged, left at 5.3%. That's really a good thing. I mean, we see that number has gone up recently as well as gone down. And each time it goes up or down, you got to look closely and wonder why. Most of the time it's been from that um, the change in the divisor as who's dropping out of the employment market, who's been deemed retired because they're unsuccessful at finding a job or just lost interest and decided to sideline themselves for a little while. So just seeing it kind of hold steady is fine. Um, and essentially at this current pace, if we keep adding jobs at this, you know, somewhere plus 200,000 per month, the uh, economists expect the jobless rate would sink below that that critical 5% mark um, as early as late this year or early next year. Um, this jobs report certainly blew a little bit of wind on the embers here in terms of does this encourage the feds now to um, consider hiking rates at their September meeting? Yeah, and I roll my eyes. You can't see that on radio, but I roll my I eyes a little bit rolling. at that number or at that statement just because, I mean, there's a headline that said the same thing. Solid job growth paves way for Fed. It was in this morning's paper. <laughs> it's, it, it, you know, every time there's a good, this jobs report isn't unlike 
several, you know, probably the last six to 12 jobs reports we've seen. We've seen growth of, of you know, net gain of jobs of over 200,000 for 18 the, months in a yeah, row. Yeah, that's been the run. We've seen unemployment under five and a half percent now for probably six months or so or around that figure, you know, in, a, in an acceptable number. We've seen um, those looking for jobs coming back that the the participation rate doesn't seem to have fluctuated as as volatilely as it has um in earlier in this recovery when people were i don't know what was going on but you know it, that seems to have stabilized a little bit um wage growth has still been kind of weak so this this jobs report isn't unlike so many others so it just feels so much like uh, an attempt to to get a click or, you know, get all some of, eyeballs. All of the headlines that I saw this week um, tried to tie the two together. You didn't read about the jobs report without seeing a reference to the feds. This report being at least good enough to keep the September rate hike on the table. Right. And I thought that was really funny. And, you know... Just kind of going back, I always like to remember, I really enjoy remembering first impressions, and I like it remembering sentiment over situations and stuff. When the feds actually implemented the very first round of the tapering, that bond tapering of QE3, um, I remember going, there's no freaking way that they're going to do it right now because that December jobs report was miserable. It was like... 87,000 jobs were added and it was I think it was kind of an anomaly because we certainly weren't seeing such lackluster numbers month after month however when that number hit and it was the feds already I mean they assured us how many times they still assure us today they're not on a predetermined course they're they've not already decided when this shoe is going to drop rather they're they keep wanting us to know that there are critical pieces of the economy that they're measuring and watching and anticipating the growth and inflation and anticipating the reduction in the unemployment rate um all these the gdp stabilizing all these things that the feds really do have their finger on um and i just remember reading that jobs report thinking there's no way this gives them the confidence this has got to at least have you punt for one more meeting but right in the eye of that they came out and so as i read all of these headlines do these people not remember that it was just a short couple years ago that we faced a very similar thing in terms of if the the Fed would act based on the most recent employment report. And it was a horrible report, and they still acted. And they still acted. Here, it's like, oh, we have a great report. And it's not even great. And that's that's partly my point here is, you know, there's this guy being quoted in this article. He's a, what is he? Chief economist at Glassdoor says, Fed officials got strong reassurance that it's time to return rates to normal levels. I... I didn't see the strong reassurance here. This was a report that's <laughs> very much like all the other, you know, by yeah. like several of the passports. This one didn't stand out so much. So rather than harp on that side of it, I think for the listeners, the point here is that for the next, I mean, we, we still have one more employment report to go before the likely raise at the September meeting. I'm not sure. Are the feds meeting here this month in August? I think they are, but it's not likely that they're going to make an announcement. Yeah, there's no scheduled Ske uh, conference. teleconference after it. So yeah, so they still believe that September would be the likely time um, 
for them to make a move if they're going to do it this early. So there's still going to be one more employment report, one more set of important data to look at, among other pieces of data. Um, but I think this is what this really paves the way for is for traders who influence mortgage rates and other interest rates to begin to speculate and place bets um, that that there will be a rate hike. And what we're probably going to see is some upward pressure on yeah, rates. Yeah, there'll be a little bit of volatility there as you want to close that door. No, in, in For those of us that rely heavily on the real estate market, you got to imagine you you get like into mortgage-backed securities, kind of things where you're putting together trillions of dollars, maybe. I mean, do you think they're trillions? Hundreds of billions? Is it trillions, Dan? It's trillions. Some of these mortgage-backed securities are so big, you don't want to be the last guy that doles out the lower rates. So, um, because then those securities aren't just quite as valuable as the, the previous, you know. So what ends up happening here, you're going to have... Uh, the the feds having where are you going i got lost <laughs> <laughs> wow that's good radio yeah it's a first <laughs> i'm just saying i and i've got that we've got that archive <laughs> he, yeah, he starts emailing and then i started paying i was like i bet he's emailing about such and such but point what i was trying to say is that as the rates are just about to go up, the bigger your, you know, whatever that investment vehicle or businesses that depends solely on it, you don't want to be caught right there. So just just enough, like on Tuesday, Atlanta Fed President Lockhart, um, this is a voting Federal Open Market Committee member, told the Wall Street Journal that he thought September could be an appropriate time for rate hike. So when you have a voting okay. member, and how many are there? Twelve. When, when one-twelfth of them is willing to tell the Wall Street Journal that September seems like a great time to do this. Well, he didn't say that. He said it could be an appropriate oh, time. Oh, Dan, read between the lines. <laughs> this guy has come forward uh -huh. to say it's this is it, you right? You must be freelancing for the Wall Street Journal or no, something. No, but I'm just saying that picture you work for the Fed. Okay, you're one of the voting members. I think that this is a perfectly – if I work for the Fed and someone asked down. me the question, I'd say, yeah, could be. Wow, that's so risky of you. It <laughs> could be. <laughs> could not be, too. That's a that's about as strong but, as a statement know, of saying could not be. But he didn't say could be or could not be. He just said could be an appropriate time. You don't know what context this was in. Hey. I mean, there's, I don't know. Listen, that's I'm market saying, moving stuff right there. I'm not saying that, there, that there's going to be a change or not. That's me saying that. What I am saying is that if you're involved in a real estate transaction and you have not locked your interest rate, it is likely that the rest of the economic world is going to start betting on rates moving higher in September. So I believe that we're going to start to see a gradual uptick in interest rates over yeah. the next six weeks or so until that September meeting, assuming that all of the data continues to be at least at or above expectations. Sure. And then what? And, and then, then we'll start it if, all over and then again. Just like in June, if they don't make a move, you're going to see an easing back down off that rate until we get close to the December meeting. And then we'll start to see it's this cycle that's going on. And so what we're going to see is about a quarter point fluctuation in interest rate, depending on data, depending on whether or not they make a move. The big the bigger issue right now is the pace of the second move and, and subsequent moves. 
um, that that's really what's gonna that's what's going to get the markets really going, I think. I think this first move's already been priced in. We've got a little bit of wiggle room here until the actual announcement's made. And then it's all about how often are the subsequent moves going to come. Seems very complicated, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so much so... What what goes into this, right? I mean, you got the U.S. is part of a global economy now where many other economies are already kind of being hammered by a strong dollar. So you're going to go push your rates up in their face. Um, I, I think that that's one reason, that's one very complicated thing, just sort of that how it affects all these other economies. And you don't want to, for some of them, I mean, look, we're Greece is still dealing with their, they're talking austerity measures still. I mean, there's these various little things where you've got, um, interest rates still being lowered in other countries. Um, we've got situations where other countries are definitely in recession and trying to figure out how to lift themselves up. Um, it doesn't make for a great spot within the global economy for the for the U.S. to push up interest rates. That's just part of it, right? There's other parts, though, like what's going on with the, the energy prices right now, for example. Barrel of oil, been pretty volatile, altogether pretty cheap. Um, as cheap as it is, it really should have made... I mean, if I just... If I described to you... Um, what would happen if we got gas down from 450 a gallon to 325 a gallon just knowing what you know about economics what would you say is that good news or bad news for it's great news for well, well it's, for most people yeah, it's really good yeah for most news. people it's really good news you're going to have more discretionary income to either save or invest or to replace worn out things that you limped for seven years because of the recession. Um, all in all, you would expect that it would have positive effect on retail spending, um, consumer sales, consumer confidence. The reality is, is that it, it really hasn't, has it? No. In fact, um, what was it, over the winter and spring months when gas prices actually were lower, we didn't see that correlate to we definitely did growth in, in consumer So it's spending. one of those things, too, where you know you start, no matter what part of it you want to talk about, where the feds are watching from, it's certainly not tied just to the jobs report. No, um, there's so, there, yeah, there's so, so many other things. It, it'll be interesting to, it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. And of course, you know, once we actually see where the shoe drops, that'll be where um, the next chapter begins. Because as you alluded to a minute ago, Dan, that initial hike, yeah, that's a significant one. What's the policy thereafter? How quickly and often can you raise rates then without stalling out the, the bigger economy? And that the feds continue to assure us that no matter when it is they raise rates, they're going to raise them slowly and probably take some great time in between the actual raises. So yeah, that's probably priced in already, but, um, We'll, uh, we'll keep our finger on it. Guys, we're going to go ahead and do a commercial break here, take some time out to thank the sponsors. We'll be back in a few minutes for more Mortgage Matters. All right, all right, welcome back. Man, I had like a full-blown minute of panic during that first piece there. <laughs> well, I was talking to you, and then 
I assumed that you were texting. Um, I got distracted. Yeah, and then I wondered quickly what it was you were texting about, and I felt like I had a reasonable idea what you were texting. And then the next thing I know, I'm like, uh-oh. I can regularly think, you know, like in, in that mental game of chess, I can do two or three thoughts at a time. When I add a fourth thought in there while talking, evidently that's that. Yeah. So that went. And then I rem- I looked at you and you were, it was clear that you didn't hear what I said for at least 60 <laughs> seconds. So there was no help coming from you. Yeah. Well, it happens to us. Only a select few get to have it happen on live radio. <laughs> you left me flapping there, buddy. <laughs> Hey, just to round out the employment discussion, there were a couple of other interesting bits of data. The U6 underemployment. The underemployment. This one is a more um, broad look at employment. These are people, this includes people who aren't working, who are working at below their um, education level or, you know, less than full time, um, you know, basically just not to their full potential um, that unemployment underemployment rate stands at 10.4% for July. That's come down quite a bit. I, I recall, um, you know, a year or two ago, probably about two years ago, that rate being closer to 18% or so. So that's, that's made that that's been improving, um, quietly under the radar, just as the unemployment rate has been improving. Hourly earnings were up 0.2%. Um, that, amounts to a whole five cents per hour. Um, Hey, at least it's going in the right direction. It is. And this is kind of a surprising number that I saw. I would never have guessed it. Um, Wages are growing slowly, but over the past 12 months, they are up 2.1%, which is far outpacing um, the inflation metric that the Fed follows. Yeah. Yet consumer spending and retail sales are still down. Yeah. What's it going to take to wake that consumer up? Maybe something more in long lines, you know, that's <laughs> more substantial, more than growth. 2% in nine years. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's really, especially after everybody took big pay cuts, right? Was I think everybody was making more money back in like 2006. Yeah. Right? If you go all the way back to 2000, wages have really not grown very much at all. No. But look at what home prices have done since 2000 or you know the cost of goods have done since 2000 yeah. the size of of the containers yeah, nothing of else things that's that being buy. packaged into a tricky <laughs> container yeah so um those are some interesting numbers and then you know our local data lags behind just a little bit we're looking at june numbers but san luis obispo county's june jobless rate was 4.4 percent so pretty darn good number that's getting pretty competitive that's a one percent one full percent lower than a year prior than um you know, June of 2014. It, let's see here. San Luis Obispo County was eighth out of uh, the 58 California counties. Um, with the the reading, San Mateo County was the lowest at 3.3 percent. Imperial County 21.1 percent. Um, I always love sharing this one with you. Of all the large cities within our county, Atascadero lowest jobless rate oh it's just because it's a great city a town came in at a 3.7 percent unemployment rate san luis obispo 4.7 percent paso five percent or grande 3.8 percent Ooh, ag's right on your heels yeah so and uh within our county education and health services were leading job growth 
for the month of June. I think we just about covered everything I have about the job <laughs> stuff. However, there was one more thing that I thought was interesting here. Um, first of all, um, well, here we have the uh, Challenger Job Cuts Report. Do you check this out? Challenger Job Cuts comes out every month and it's one of the metrics here that we track to see how many employers announce layoffs reduction in staff nationally um this was a bad reading here employers announced um layoffs of 105,696 job cuts for the month of july um, that's the highest number of losses in a single month in over four years now the feds are going to have to talk about that. Oh, man. They'll come back and tell us if they're still going to raise rates. Maybe it's not paving the way for the Fed. No. Uh, the jolts numbers are still looking pretty good, though, um, showing that there are plenty of openings. It seems that it's getting um, more competitive in the job market for sure. I mean, around here, when you look at an economy that's got 4-point-something percent unemployment... That means it's you're you're kind of almost running at optimum employment there. Um, it's impossible to be fully employed, uh, but it starts to get that's where it starts to get a lot more competitive, right? You can be a lot more selective uh, as an employer. You know, when when well, I guess it kind of goes both ways. Yeah, you kind of have to settle when there's not a lot of candidates. I, yeah, and right as I started to say that, I started to think about wages. I was like, no, well, probably not actually, but you are going to have to sharpen up the pencil to pay that quality person yeah. to want your job over the others. Um, yeah, back when the unemployment rate was double digits, that's where it would be a little bit um, easier for somebody without all the skills or whatever. Just some, you just have to have somebody maybe or. You know, so we're hitting a point now where the market's just it's getting it's that's relatively good, though. Right. I mean, all these jobs being created, we know we replaced all the jobs. It was like a year ago. We talked about of the eight million jobs that were lost. They were recreated now and added back into the economy. Nobody argues that the jobs today are worth less. Right. I mean, they're yeah, you're there's not been making a lot of, the same way. There's been a lot of clever, you know, ways to describe the recovery, the fast food recovery, <laughs> things like that. Yeah, there's been a lot of of lower paying jobs added. So we've talked about it many times before. The next shoe to drop as far as employment in theory should be that the people who are employed should start to be seeking to move up the rung. Right. Um, you know, move into a job that's maximizing their skills or get lured away to another company willing to pay exactly a higher wage for the same job. Yeah. Which is going to happen in a competitive market. So we look forward to seeing that happen. And, you know, this is the kind of thing I think the feds are probably they, they realize these things that and those are just sort of critical milestones to reach and they're just trying to let us know that we're approaching them in in most ways and so that's why the focus gets to every meeting here it could be next meeting it might be probable it could be likely um so we'll just we'll keep an eye on it but going back to how it relates to rates dan you're you're right about that the very suggestion that next month might be the month where policy finally changes 
causes a little bit of volatility and it puts upward pressure on rates. Um, and I would suggest that the closer you get to that September meeting is the more it's going to vary there. So if you do have a loan that you'd like to lock or are looking at doing a refinance, uh, this is a pretty good time to sneak one in there. Uh, altogether, though, um, we've, we've seen downward pressure on rates for the last couple of weeks in that where it's been in the chop of volatility, we definitely are back in the trough of what we've had in recent history. So yeah. there was, you know, I would suggest that probably a month ago, it maybe was a quarter of a point higher than where it is right now. So it's, it is nice to catch a little bit of that lull, but like you said, I, I just keep waiting for it to start to work back that upward hill into the Fed meeting. Well, and I think we just saw it this week. The Around the middle of this week, the, the benchmark indicator, the 10-year Treasury yield, bottomed out at about 215. And it's since moved a little higher, really as the employment data started to come out, which I believe started on Wednesday, Thursday. Um, so we're starting to see it inch its way up. 215 was actually below the range of the 10-year yield that I had been keeping an eye on for the last several months. I had been seeing it um, range between about 2.25 and 2.5%. So it actually dropped below the range. Um, at our company, I saw a lot of loans that were floating get locked uh, no. this week. So that yeah, was There was a couple great good. days where... You could make a deal better for your borrower. Yeah, <laughs> you could click. You could click go now and maybe even get extra time, but also get either a better rate or just a lot lower closing costs. And those are, man, those are welcome weeks because there are some weeks where you feel like you just are on the losing side of that tug of war. But this was a good week, and there, yeah, there was a lot of loans that got locked this week. Yeah. So this is a this is a firsthand example of why we keep our eye on all this stuff and talk about this the way we do. I mean, it. it kind of gets exhausting and repetitive that we talk about these things over and over and over again, but it's because it, you know, the perception changes and it, and it influences how we guide our clients. So, um, yeah, we, we discuss it, not just Jason and I, but our entire office. It's talks funny about that you bring that week. up too, because this week I was, um, looking you know there's these paid services where the you'll just get an alert like as a loan officer it's like the loan officer toolbox but it'll just tell you hey um you know rates are going up hurry go lock some stuff or likewise rates are going down don't race to lock and there's some of those sites that I see. Um, one of the investors that we work with in particular is real, got like a meter from green to red, and they are real touchy with emails, They're sending emails out. Oh, market's deteriorating. You better lock. Um, when you don't know what's going on in the broader economy and what is actually influencing these past the headlines because i'll tell you what every time some data like this the things we talk about every time um pick one where it's like yeah employment report paves the way for fed rate hike um the drive-by media is going to make that play bigger than it is which then starts to create a little bit of upward pressure a little bit of panic right so if you're if you're paying attention just to that if that's all you do and then you're waiting for the green arrow to tell you whether or not you could lock now you're doing like the the midday like panic locks and stuff whereas for us because we're hunkered way down into knowing not only what the expectations of these things are but a bigger barometer of what's normal 
what's expected, what's coming. Um, knowing all of that stuff makes it to where uh, I'll get one of those notifications that it says, oh, this market's deteriorating, you need to lock. And I'm like, well, that's pretty short-sighted because that's responding simply to this little thing that'll be old news by morning and we'll get back on the path we are on or something. So a lot of those conversations around the office about whether the little shift in momentums, like you mentioned, middle of this week when the employment stuff started to come out, we sort of hit that hump. My expectation is that actually next week we'll probably see a continuation of the slide. I don't think we actually are going to be doubling back on that quite yet. Um, that next week, though, as we get, you know, further deeper into August, I think we still have a little bit more of the because of the distance now between us and that September meeting. I think we have at least two more weeks of, um, if nothing else, just that uh, that optimism, that optimism Uh, that there's that it's okay now. It's safe, guys. Let's do business real quick, because that's really not going to sting us for another 14 days. And I think that and and you know what? That's good business, too. There's going to be a lot of people that are going to run down and have good rates and do good business and get another good push of business while the getting's good and then yeah i do i expect for all of september we're going to be singing a different tune in here about how it is a little bit tougher a little bit more competitive uh those rates are seem like they're inching upwards out of grasp um we'll see that and then once the feds do what they do no matter what they do we'll get a little bit of relief because the anticipation is always greater than the deed yeah in in addition to this economic data there's just the the business side of things you know these these banks employ people um you know, including ourselves, we employ people and we need to keep them busy. And part of that is having new loans come in the door. The whole industry has seen a, a bit of a a slowing of applications because the rates have gone up enough that refis have really slowed down. There's not enough homes necessarily on the market to satisfy demand. So there's a lot of people out with, with pre-approvals but haven't found the right home. And they're out looking but not yet into contracts. So there's a lot of a lot of um, waiting right now and and not so much of the new applications actually coming to fruition at this point. And I can tell that primarily because all the salespeople that we sell loans to are out in force right now. They're knocking on the doors. They're making those um, unexpected calls, those unsolicited calls, just walking in. Hey, how you doing? Trying to get some business. I hate those calls, by the way. Um, I got so tricked yesterday. I was in the, I was in the lobby of the slow office and there was a guy and he he came in and he was holding a folder mm-hmm. that looked like it could have been loan documents cuz it was like two folders yeah. and he said we, so he was greeted by reception and i heard him he said i'm i'm looking for jason <laughs> and they said well which one we got a couple of them and he says well how many jasons do you have and then i piped in and i said well there's two jasons and depending on which one you're looking for i might not disappoint you and he goes i'm looking for jason grot and i'm like oh no i stepped in a sales guy like this is that (laughs) and sure enough there he was started right in with the flyers the you know here recycle this for me flyers um but he made his way over to the 
to my office Did he? later in the day. Yeah. Yeah, and then later, just so you know, I saw him leaving Century Twenty One. So yeah. this guy's not just a wholesaler. I think he's like a wholesaler and a retailer. No, he said he's just trying to make. He's trying to solicit realtors so they know what products he offers, and that way they can encourage. They can call him, and he can refer. Yeah, it's just. Oh. That's exhausting. But, but yes, I can, can tell that yeah. that volume is down. These sales reps are out. And so part of you know what I was getting back to my point, beyond just the economic data that comes out and influences the markets, the bigger banks and, and even the smaller banks are incentivized to maybe keep rates lower um, at this time just to try to generate some new business in the door, even though the markets might be experiencing that upward pressure. But yeah, I do agree. We're... We're in a cycle now where we're approaching, you know, we're six weeks out of that September meeting. We may hold steady. We may go down a little bit more next week. But I think over the next six weeks, we're going to see a little more upward trajectory on rates. And so if you're new entering into contract, it's probably going to be important to lock early on in the process just so that you secure your rate. Um, and for those of you who are still floating, you might want to seriously think about locking in an interest rate. Yeah, that's good advice. It is time to uh, to take a commercial break. Oh. <laughs> Are we? Yes did no. you just delete it? I'll no, say. No, 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 it's not deleted. Oh, okay. Uh, then we're good. Let's do a break. We owe a break. I just I wasn't sure if you wanted to. You know. Woo. You didn't bring your A game today. I'm tired. <laughs> we normally take two breaks an hour. We totally do. This will be number yeah. two for the first. Time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just seems right, doesn't it? Yeah. Nine forty nine. I think it's the time. We're going to do it. Time for number two. <laughs> it's time for number two. Break number two. Here we go. <laughs> Here we go. We're back. 9.51. That was a good break. Glad yeah, we did it. I'm really happy about that <laughs> break, too. I'm glad. That was a good decision. Yeah, we almost... There was a lot of indecision, and then we, we just went for it. That's good. Now what? I'm over here um, <laughs> being distracted. Currently captivated by my new Windows 10. Ooh, cool. Did hey. you do it yet? No, I didn't. I'm just I'm, I'm enjoying what look, I know. Look, you can look at my icons. I can make them big or small, really small. You don't have to scroll right left down like you're on a no. on a phone that's pretty you can't awesome. Touch the Everything does just exactly what you need it to do. Cool. I love it. Yeah, I didn't like the one before that. That, that last one eight, was... Windows 8 or 9 or both? I think I had... Yeah, 8.1 maybe. Yeah. We made a jump. I think we skipped 9. There I'm was a leap made. I'm still on Windows 7. It's the, the one that everyone knows how to operate because it just makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I'm reluctant to change from the one that just makes sense. It hey, seems to work fine. Dan, just do you, man. I am. I'm doing it. Whatever you Whatever you like. Yeah. Don't there are still it... machines in this building on XP. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I love me some XP. That, they, they, it just it makes sense. Super. Once they got to the icons mm -hmm. that float around and are hiding on off the screen, you kind of think like what's on your screen is all there is. No, uh, no, there's no, more. No. Oh, so yeah. much more. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't like that. Hey, yeah. you remember our friends uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac? I was going to ask you the same thing, and I was even going to do it in the same way. Um, and I thought, <laughs> so I'll do what I hoped you would say. Okay. Whatever happened to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? <laughs> they're still working. Funny you should ask. <laughs> yeah, they're still working out there. They uh, they turned in some nice second quarter profits. They're going to be making a dividend payment to the U.S. Treasury. 
combined between the two, um, about $8.3 billion payment to the U.S. Treasury. That's some pretty good scratch for sure. That's and nice, um, yeah. I was thinking about this. This is what I was going to, this is the way I was going to do it, Dan. Um, Fannie Mae makes up like 80% of the volume between the two of them. They have historically, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it, that's still the way it works, but. It's still largely favored by Fannie Mae. I mean, if anything, I'd say maybe it's 75-25 now. But I don't think Freddie Mac has gotten much more market share than that so far. I mean, this is why Freddie came out and made LP free now. Their automated so underwriting Fannie engine. Fannie Mae is going to counter because they don't want to see any market share it. going. Yeah. So interestingly enough, um, yeah, it, these guys have been in conservatorship now since 2008. And, uh, in fact, we should be having an anniversary party for them. Because I remember it was August or September. I think it was September that it was official. But, um, man, that's some nice quarterly dividends happening right there. Fannie Mae is going to write a check to the U.S. Treasury for $4.4 billion. And then Freddie Mac is going to, um, what their check here is $3.9 billion. For being so dwarfed in um, volume, they sure are profitable. <laughs> I think I think reason being is that Fannie has a bigger portfolio where they're still experiencing a little bit more of those legacy issues. They've got still a little bit higher delinquency rates from those aged loans where I think Freddie obviously is just experiencing less. And, of course, Freddie Mac is growing their volume. They've been taking more and more market share as a – I mean, because it's a, it's a great – it's a it's really a great platform, the Freddie Mac um, loan platform. And many people ask me, why are there two? If they're both in conservatorship by the government, and technically – these are really private enterprises, even still, though they're in conservatorship. Um, so the the answer here is that they're a little bit different. Um, they both have automated underwriting engines that are proprietary, and they evaluate and analyze risk a little bit differently. Um, Fannie Mae focuses much more heavily on the credit and income side of the equation, whereas Freddie Mac focuses a lot more on the um, asset. the asset part mm -hmm. of the transaction and a little bit more emphasis on the collateral section there, um, worry, giving a lot more clout to equity, right? Yeah. If you've got more equity and you've got more assets, they're a little bit more your speed. The, the guidelines between the two, however, are relatively subtle. Um, Freddie Mac will go to a higher debt to income ratio. They both really have the same credit standards and minimums. Um, what Freddie Mac will allow you to have a non-occupant co-borrower easier than a Fannie Mae loan will. So if you're needing, you know, let's say you're self-employed and you just don't show a lot of profits, but you've got a rich uncle that's willing to co-sign for you, we do like a Freddie Mac loan for you. Um, Fannie Mae has. Um, will allow you to qualify with rents without having any landlord experience. So if you were buying your very first investment property in San Luis Obispo and you just couldn't afford the $3,500 a month mortgage, you couldn't qualify with it without offsetting that number with the rents, um, Freddie Mac will allow you to do that regardless of whether or not you have a history. Fannie wants you to have a two-year history before they let you go buy something you've no proven track record to manage. Um, 
And those are minority transactions. Uh, trying to think of a few others. Freddie will allow you to do that one-year income documentation. Again, mm -hmm. because they care a little bit more about assets for people that, um, you know, maybe 2013 wasn't great and 2014 really was. You could qualify just on your 2014 taxes. Um, or for people that have got really complex stuff, it's just easier to bring in one year worth of documentation instead of two. Fannie will allow um, a, a borrower to have up to 10 financed properties. Yep. So there's, yeah, there's little subtle differences between the two. There's a lot of overlap, but there's little, little things that make them different and allow them to compete with one another. Um, so yeah, it's, I guess the big question about this, we've, we know that Fannie and Freddie have repaid all of the money that they were um, given during the the crash to help support them, stabilize them. They've repaid all that. And now they've repaid a whole lot more and continue to repay more every quarter. Um, what's the best structure for them going forward? Is this working out? The what? reason they're in conservatorship now is they made the private the the profits private and the losses public. So I personally would like to see them go back to being private enterprise. Um, I I think the government did a good job of girding them up and and taking us. We needed them to get through this recession. Rather than giving the funding the general economy by giving the treasury eight billion dollars this month, I'd rather see that money get set aside in trust for future losses, so that they should have to put a certain percentage of profits yeah. every quarter into and, that account. And never again should their um, lack of stability or earnings be a public problem. Um, that's how I'd like to see it handled. Guys, we're getting forced out for the top of the hour break here. That's what that music means. So we'll be gone for five minutes. Go get your coffee, water the dog, do what you got to do. We'll be back in a few minutes here for more Mortgage Matters. All right, everybody, welcome back. Got this second hour here. It's just 10.05. It's hard to believe we just did a whole hour. I mean, when it's... And it was quality too, wasn't it, Dan? That was. That was good stuff. <laughs> it's always fun this this week that includes the first Friday. Yeah, yeah. In the scheduling, we always we let the uh, the scheduler for the show know that we don't even want a guest on this day. It's just the this is our day just to enjoy each other. <laughs> Does that make you uncomfortable? No, it doesn't. <laughs> Darn, I was, I was trying so hard. Oh man. You know, I don't bring this up a lot on the show because, uh, frankly, I'm not convinced that it's great radio or perfectly relevant. Yeah, but, but today's the day, huh? Every single week, articles about the millennials dominate, just absolutely dominate the headlines in all things real estate and mortgage. Do you see that? I do. I think we're we're sharing... Oh, sharing thoughts today. Yeah. Oh, were you just about to segue into something about the millennials? I was. I pulled up an Surely interesting little. Surely it couldn't little... have been next, though. Maybe we yeah, just. It was. I, wow. I mean, look, Me I pulled too. up this neat little infographic about who the millennial buyer is. Uh huh. It's a big deal. Did you know that millennials are actually um, there are more millennials on the planet than there are baby boomers? Baby boomers have long been the 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 bulge, the coveted demographic that every everyone that's got something to sell wants to go after because they're the one that it moves the market they're the 
they're the big force, right? They are that they're the bulge in population. Millennials, there's actually more millennials than there are baby boomers now. Oh. I I've made like this correlation in my mind that millennials and hipsters are the same thing. <laughs> Probably. So, <laughs> so when yeah. you say millennials, I just keep thinking, yeah, they're riding like a bike with no brakes or gears. Yeah, and they have a huge beard. Yeah. Or maybe just a handlebar mustache. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, not all so this reminds me of like the first logic class i took at cuesta you remember the all srp some srp no srp or whatever the not venn diagram because that's the is it a venn the overlapping circles where you get that middle part where things are shared mm -hmm. so um Man, I was just going to say, I bet all hipsters are millennials, <laughs> but not all millennials are hipsters. That that's, sounds to be very true. Yeah. Um, but I'll yeah, really, that. though, truly, millennials are... Um, and and I guess... You, I always joke about this, but you know how you know you're old? Like, because you start doing those things where you're like, you know, oh, the youth today, the problem with them is... Yeah. <laughs> totally um millennials are kind of uh building themselves some stereotypes and in how they tie into the real estate and mortgage world is um many of them don't own cars many of them don't want to own real estate um, at least some according to some articles and then mm -hmm. others suggest that they really do but it's just too expensive um in this one, this particular article that I saw starts to talk a little bit about the correlation between student loan debt and those millennials and what they've got going on there. Um, U.S. student loan debt, $1.1 and climbing. Uh, that is a lot of money. Yes, that's trillion with a T. Um, and you know what? It doesn't just affect students when you got um, student loan debt. It it really, I I remember right after I got out of school when I was struggling and and you know Mel and I had our first kid and times were tough. Um, I remember making that student loan payment. That was one of the bigger bills I had. That wasn't just a rent bill, but. Um, it definitely took money out of my pocket. If I didn't have to pay that student loan bill, I'd have been, I'd have been out, you know, putting new tires on the car or doing something like that. That you know, but that student loan just takes precedence, right? There's no way to get out of it, and it's already like a thirty-year obligation. Sure, they'll offer you some kind of a, you know, you could. What's the word? Consolidate. No. You can take it from a 10-year to a 30-year. Yeah, right. <laughs> pay triple. No, but I was thinking in terms of like the deferment. Like you could work out yeah. a deferment agreement with them where they kind of look over. You have to give them a reporting of your income and where your budget and stuff is. And they can come back and say, okay, well, we'll like, we'll put you on a status of you don't need to pay us for 12 months. And so while that might give you a little breathing room, it certainly does nothing to solve the problem because the interest accrues over the 12 months. And then when you fire up again, there's that bill waiting for you that's now more than it was 12 months ago when you um, instituted deferment. So um, it does. It affects the entire U.S. economy. And anybody that doesn't believe so is crazy. Um, 
And it just so happens that consumer spending and housing are two pretty significant components of um, the U.S. economy. So it's not it's not hard to see how far reaching this is. Uh, the American Student Assistance Program, it's a outfit they go by ASA. They conducted a survey and said that um, seventy five percent of respondents indicated that student loan debt affected their decision and or ability to purchase a home. 75% of them basically said, I can't because I can't afford this, or um, I won't be considering that because I've got this hanging over my head. Um, 47% of the respondents said it was a deciding factor um, or it had considerable impact on their decision to start a business. That, too, is a pretty interesting shot across the bow that these millennials are, and, and no matter how you want to draw up the, the sides here, the millennials are the next generation, and they're the people today hitting the driver's seat. These are our young entrepreneurs. These are the people that are going to shape and take our country on as, you know, us the others of us head into um, less usefulness in the overall economy. Um, whether or not you're willing to acknowledge all that, that's just a fact. 64% um, of private sector jobs and 49% of private sector employment comes from small businesses. I just want to say that again, 64% of new private jobs and 49% of total private jobs come from small businesses. These millennials are the ones that are saying that nearly half of them cannot go start their business or flex that entrepreneurial muscle because they're choked out by the student loan. So we're, we're seeing that. Um, I think that'll probably prove to be one of the pretty big topics coming up in this election year as far as what happens with the student loan debt. Um, you know, in, it's kind of crazy. I mean, you... You can't go bankrupt out of it. There's nothing you can do to get it to go away. There are some programs where if you work for the state, like I know in one of the uh, recent borrowers that I was working with, she was a psychologist that worked for the state of California. And after 10 years of service with the state of California, her student loans would be then paid. So... That's kind of cool, but maybe we need something like that now, that you don't just give away the money, but if the government's going to be having to eat it or reduce it or somehow subsidize it, that then the sort of civil service then back for the rest of a society ultimately that's going to somehow shoulder that weight is going to get some benefit from it. I don't know, but it's a mess for sure. Um, but we keep seeing the millennials, though, the millennials. And, and more recently, some of these articles that I'm reading, and these must be the millennials that were too cool for school, because those millennials are out um, starting to buy now. And they are expected to be the next great chunk to market because they are your greatest demographic of the next home buyer right here yeah the average age of a millennial is 28 years old so that's that's right about that time when family formation starts to happen in your life you're, you're starting to get stability in your employment situation and um, the next step after stability and employment and family is 
generally looking at buying a home and settling down. So they are right around the corner being that huge home buying population. And it's important to understand the economics of, of their, of their life and, and their ability to afford real estate. Um, there was a report by Harvard that said, um, well, this, this wasn't specific to millennials, but I think it's, it's probably includes millennials that 20% of households across the country make making, you know, an average wage between four to $6,000 per month. They spend more than 30% of their monthly income on rent. And then you th throw in the student debt situation. I mean, there's a lot of their income going away to just two well, fixed bills. 30% is kind of the average. It, in some of the more expensive places, like you could imagine it's parts as much of California, half. Yeah, yeah. half of your income now going towards your rent. So you've got, that's just rent. Then you've got the student loan problem, which is impacting um especially these younger folks a lot i mean you've got a very little discretionary income left after that um so that's definitely impacting home buying what was interesting i i pulled up this report there's a survey done by um a mortgage company here about the millennial buyer and it broke down some different statistics about millennial buyers um before you say that let me interject right here this is going to be worthwhile mm-hmm um, a record 21.6 million millennials are living with their parents right now. Yeah. Um, and these are, like you said, these are some folks that are actually uh, making some decent money and they are opting to make home home again. Uh, many of them moving back in, just trying to save, save and yeah. not necessarily on the path of simply just saving to be able to buy a home, but realizing that it's a cruel, tough, expensive world out there. Yeah. And if you can, um, if there's a bed for you still in mom's basement that you can be there and um, save some money, um, it's a pretty wild declining employment. In 2012, 63% of 18 to 30 year olds had jobs down from 70% of their parents' generation. So, so for a little 16%? while... 16%? No, 63. Oh, okay. Uh, so a few, <laughs> a little bit less of them were working, but um, many more of them going to college, though. Um, that rate kind of through the roof, which sort of facilitates this nasty turnstile, right? Um, more of you are going to school, less of you are working. That means more of you have student loan debt. Yeah. Um, and then... Less of them are even getting married, too. In 2012, just 25% of millennials were married, uh, which is down from 30% of that same age demographic if you look just a few years back at in 2007. Hmm. Um, kind of interesting. Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, the the steps that I laid out, you know, you, you get stability in your employment, you start to form a family, then you buy proves to be supported with what you just said, 25% of millennials are married. When millennials look to buy a home, 54% of those buyers are married. So there's definitely um, a, a more typical process that that they start forming that family unit and then look to buy a home. Um, of the millennial buyers that were surveyed here, 41% used a co-borrower to finance. 20% of them used family assistance, so like gift funds, um, is basically what that's referring to. Um, in a separate survey, parents um, who 
have their children between 18 and 35 years old, 17% of them expect to help their children purchase a home. So those numbers are very much in line. And we see that a lot in our business. When younger people are coming to buy a home, um, very often, I'd say more than 20% of the time, we're seeing some sort of gift from family and, and or um, the parents just being on the loan application with them as a non-occupying borrower on the loan application because they're, they're satisfying one, either one of two problems or both of the problems in that these young people don't have enough money to make a down payment and still have enough cushion to live, you know, furnish the home and just have a cushion, a safety net, or they just don't make enough to afford the average home. And granted, we're in an area where home affordability is pretty poor um, for the average income. I think it's something like a third of of San Luis, San Luis County residents can actually afford the median priced home. Um, so maybe it's a little bit exaggerated here, but we're seeing similar um, kind of statistics all over the country. So parents are very much getting involved in helping their their children um, get into housing and afford housing, whether it's just a gifted down payment or helping them qualify with their income. So I think that's all interesting. We talk about this stuff a lot. I guess going beyond just the the statistics, what does it mean? I mean, is this is this just how it is? Is there a way that we can make housing more affordable? Is is this well, just the future? Is this is this evolution of home ownership or is it that like home affordability is out i mean is it just demonstrating that home affordability is outpaced income is is there something that needs to change with financing um to make homes more affordable yeah i feel like in the end all it really means is that we have a pretty good grasp on what objections these the new generation has what challenges they face we and and i mean is it to be expected that the norm is that parents need to help their kids buy homes if we want to see young people own homes is that the way housing should be no it's not that it should necessarily be that way but i think that that is kind of the norm and one of the things too where um you know some some of the tougher older generations here might say well it's just how they are they can't help themselves you've got to be you've got to take them by the hand and help them now they're you know for whatever reason making all the excuses or whatever i is it some it, shortcoming of the millennial or is it just how the economy has changed maybe it's just because they were like raised on video games man. <laughs> <laughs> no i don't think so i i don't um it is a competitive housing market here in california it is it really is and you but you, these numbers are are nationwide numbers these aren't just california numbers sure. so it's it's occurring everywhere yeah well you know one thing that you got to kind of remember you can you can find exception to this but as a rule housing and income share a relative relationship geographically right sure you don't get to go I don't know, work at Costco and make $24 an hour in a town where houses sell for 50 grand. It's just not quite the same in those economies. So here we're going to, we're going to make a little bit more and we're going to spend a little bit more and you end up on the same part of the hamster wheel you are in other parts of the country too. So yeah, it, it housing is expensive. 
It, it just is. And we talked about this earlier in the show. We haven't really seen wage growth in 15 years. We keep hoping for wage growth, but wages are lagging and we know it and the feds know it. it's a critical part of the the economy at large, let alone just looking at the housing economy. Um, that's our single biggest bill, right? In most every household is just the rent or mortgage bill. Um, and that's hard when, when people aren't making more money. They... It seems like a tremendous burden to the parents of millennials to have to to be expected to oh, participate nonsense. in their oh, totally. your your parents to have your, your inherited their parents wealth and pay for them That's, yeah but see what? it's just a shift in mentality you used to i got to pay my house off and save all these monies and get these good dividends and live off my pension and make all these financial moves so that when i die my kids can all inherit all this stuff that i deprived myself of and then today, many of these parents are coming out saying, yeah, you know what? You're getting your inheritance now. It's a cutthroat real estate market out there, and we're going to give you $50,000 or $100,000 down so you can buy a house. And they're just getting their inheritance early. I think you're assuming that there's a lot of wealth out there. I mean, when, when people accumulate a bunch of money through their working years and then say they amass, you know, some chunk of savings or whatever, if they have three or four kids, you know, if they have, if they have one kid, it's one thing. If they have three or four kids, all of a sudden that wealth gets distributed and, and there's not nearly as much of it to go around, nor are they necessarily willing to part with it all. I mean, they need to retire and well, you don't have live. the benefit of making <laughs> earnings on that wealth over time. I mean, it delays people's ability to retire when their 30 year old is living with them because they can't afford not only to own a home, but even to just afford rent. You know, it definitely impacts the family unit and more so than it ever and has in the past. Yeah. But uh, well, that's what me, I was going to ask you. You think that's a new problem? Yeah, I do. Oh. I think it's definitely a new problem. I think wages have not kept up with the price of homes and something needs to give here. I'm about Neither, to wrangle our to engineer dig. into this because he seems to perhaps have more tenure in this uh, <laughs> world than we do. Um, have rents always been uh, problematic for people getting up and coming? Yeah. Yeah. Rents suck. It's expensive. It takes up a lot of your Yeah, but income. never before have we had the number of 30-year-olds living at home. All right, but is that due to a lack of motivation and a coddling and a babying and a we'll do everything for you now, including making, saving and making your down payment? Or is that, I mean, is that, is life just too hard now for no, people? The, the numbers say the percentage of of your total income that you pay towards rent is the highest it's ever been. Would you agree? I would. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's expensive. So things have gotten more expensive. The cost of housing, whether to rent or to own, has gotten more expensive relative to wages. So either wages are due to pop here and catch up with housing, or <laughs> we need to take a hard look at the way we buy housing. And and I guess ultimately what I'm getting at, the idea that I walked in here today with to, to offer as a solution is, um, is through financing... 
with a longer term in mind. Yeah, but the people that are making these laws are fat cats on Wall Street. They're, you know, like when Forbes came out and said nobody should be able to buy a house without 20% down payment. That's easy for you to say, dude. You heat your house by burning million dollar bills. Well, exactly. How many millennials are in um, in the government right now? How many millennials are None. senators or congressmen or, you know, they're not. They're probably fetching they're coffee not. for those people. Right. Yeah. So helping what we them have, update their Twitter feed. We have, you know, and and how many of those those folks, you know, making laws and making decisions, um, are are would you say are like middle income or or lower <laughs> lower income people? None. So do you think these Zero. folks who make decisions, make laws, are in touch with what's going on with They're the majority so of the population? They're so out of touch with right. what so is going on. At some point, someone needs to get in touch and and look at you know maybe maybe real estate sticks around. You know maybe maybe homes stand for more than thirty years and we can we can extend the term of a loan and, and make that not a forbidden loan term. Yeah. May, maybe that would help affordability. Um, maybe there's other creative solutions that we can offer to um, help make things more affordable so that we're not just burdening the older population with the, the younger. If the, I, the millennials if I problem. had known you were such a socialist, I never would have gotten in. Business it's not a you. socialist <laughs> thing. It's a, it's an economic right. issue here. Yeah. I'm just teasing you. No, I agree. And we do. We And this is why these articles continue to be written, where we we sort of are understanding more and more and more about who these people are, what their struggles are and how expensive it is. And at some point, yeah, we need to come up with a solution. Because right? this is a problem. I find that I err on the side of put your head down and work harder. I realize that that's not an answer for 100% of people because if everybody just put their head down and worked harder, we'd be in the exact same boat. I, I get that. It is – you're right. It is probably time for um, – to bring uh, what Joe the plumber <laughs> to Wall Street and talk about this guy's plight, dude. What it? How hard is it? Now, to if you don't have relatives that can give you a down payment, that's a pretty tricky task to save yourself a hundred grand when you're 28 years old. That's hard. Um, so I don't know, I don't have the answers for you. And uh, I know uh, if I got called on to go help solve some of these problems, I would, I would take that very seriously. I would love to, but for the most part, I see how the the laws and all this thing that happen continue to make it more expensive. They make it harder and and more competitive. And um, you know, so what can you do tomorrow? Put your head down, and work hard, so you can buy yourself a house. I don't know. That's a, that's all I know to do today. I'm not going to be able to write us new laws. Yeah. <laughs> Just after I pay off that student loan, right? I still a have a student loan. That's the, that's all. I have gray hair now. I'm paying a student loan. All right, folks. It's ten twenty nine. We're gonna take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back with more mortgage matters. All right, guys. Welcome back. We're just about to solve the world's problem here. Well, I just got to thinking during the break that, you know, a longer loan term isn't the only solution for affordability. People can just move away from this idea of a fixed payment for the term of their loan and look at like a three or five year adjustable rate mortgage that will adjust on them. But if it's used as a stepping stone, could be a solution. 
Yeah, we saw how that one played yeah, out. Yeah, so then you just add more risk to the equation. So, I don't know. I don't know. It's expensive to own real estate. I don't, you know, the, the whole idea of the 50-year loan, it obviously is way more expensive. There's so much more interest going to the bank. The cost of that loan, you're going to, instead of paying... You know, when you look at a 30-year loan and look at how much you actually pay over 30 years, it's like double the loan amount. Yeah. A 50-year is probably triple. But yeah. it's not... I, I don't see it necessarily being used as something where someone's going to buy their home and stay in it for the for their lifetime. That's not even what the average American does in the current environment. Most loans stay on the books for like 7 to 10 years. So it's really right. just could be used as a stepping stone to make it a more affordable way to buy a home, buy the first home, maybe build a little bit of equity and hopefully be able to climb up the employment ladder a little bit and build some savings too. So then they can sell that home, move more savings and their little bit of equity into another home down the line and then maybe get into a 30 year loan or, or even shorter term. You know, we see as people get older and either move or just simply refinance their home that they tend to shorten their loan term along the way. And and so it could just be used as a stepping stone, um, but in the short term, also be more beneficial to to the lender, too, because they're going to get a little bit more interest. Um, it can benefit everyone, I think. Um, it's, it seems like, like a pot potentially good solution to the affordability issue. Yeah, it seems like, uh, you know, and you got to remember, too, is that you, you're looking at this problem also with a kind of a narrow scope here of in California... Yeah. In San Luis Obispo. Um, it's it's a little bit compounded here. There are other parts of the country. We were talking to a borrower last week from um, like the New Jersey area. And he and his wife been in their house for like five years and were interested in upgrading to a bigger home. Right. They've had a couple kids now, but they're both making more money. They've got a little equity in their house. So doing like a some solid mid thirties kind of life stuff. Right. Um, so they want to sell their house. We said, well, do you sell your house contingent and you buy another house? Oh no, that doesn't fly around here. Some of these houses are, are marketed for sale for six or nine months where you'll be making price reductions and, hmm. um, just hoping to attract a buyer. So you really have to either figure out how to sell your house first or really plan on having two for a while while you figure it out. So, well, that's really a bummer. I said, not really, because the house I want to buy is in that same boat. Okay, so I get that. Yeah, it's all relative in your little micro economy there. That makes sense. Boy, how different is that from here? Uh, we're not seeing that here. Many of the sales that are happening here are contingent on somebody's sale or whatever of another property. Some of these escrows are two, three, four dominoes in a row kind of thing where the only person... Um, the person buying the cheapest house is the first time home buyer and the person they're buying from is selling to buy who's buying from a person that's selling to buy from uh, an estate. I mean, something like that, right? Those are the kind of things that happen around here that you got to be able to figure out how to make all that go down together as a group in a short little period. That's just what it takes to do business around here lately. Um, so very different. And I think when you, when you look at it that way, 
Um, and I, I heard some of these arguments, too, that I thought were interesting. I mean, you, you know how Fannie Mae right now, we have our maximum loan limit of 417000 And then we've got a temporary increase right now for our county where you can borrow what is historically a jumbo loan. You can borrow $561,200 under a normal Fannie Mae 30-year fix. It's a phenomenal program. Um, those loans make up less than 1% of the total generated funded volume for Fannie Mae. So when we beg and moan that we need that number expanded or the continuation to stay, much of the country looks at these this analysis and says, don't listen to the whiners in California that live in their overpriced utopia and make decisions about the, these loan amounts and these policies for something that makes up volume-wise such an insignificant portion. And thankfully, it's those higher loans that are uh, – I mean, look, if you are going to have a million-dollar servicing portfolio, would you rather service a $1,000 loans or one $1 million loan? Probably be easier just to manage just the Just do one. one. <laughs> Let's take – you know, you know – it. There's some arguments but to be made about perform. volatility. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. If there's going to be a 10% failure rate, you'd rather have than the 1,000 loans to, to be floating those gaps. But point being, it's not – this isn't totally the norm nationally, and we forget that a little bit. Um, and to the same end, we all can relate to how expensive it is. It seems like every week on the show we talk about how rents in San Luis have become $1,000 a bedroom. And that's crazy. There, that is certainly not the norm even in this state. Uh, but if we zoomed out and looked at the nation, uh, I guarantee you there are full-on houses that are being rented for $200 in some cities. So, so that's another solution for affordability for millennials is you get to move out of California. And we'll just make California a state. The for, retirement state. Yeah, for, like Florida. for retirees and, and wealthy, the wealthy. That's not fair. I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna sue you just for saying that. That's not fair. We shouldn't have to go. <laughs> there was a there's an annual survey done by um, a bank, TD Bank, does an annual mortgage survey, and they discovered that 30 percent of Americans consider now to be a good time to buy a home. How many? 30 percent of Americans compared to 20 percent last year. Um. The index identified that 40% of consumers feel like there is a lack of inventory in their price range. So huh. a lot of people want to buy, but a lot of people can't find something or don't believe there's something in their price range where they want to live. It'd be interesting to see this survey done only in California. That sort of uh, backs up a little bit more of the fact, you know, like the point I was trying to make, and we talked a little bit more about this during the break, but absent of what makes real estate affordable here, part of it is just the scarcity of it. Mm -hmm. There's not enough homes to go around. You hear statements like this, not everybody that wants to buy can buy. And that's what creates the competitions that make uh, the homes worth more money. Right. Don't you think? Yeah. Did you see um, Lawrence Yun, the 
chief economist from the National Association of Realtors. He was talking about this very topic, the topic of inventory shortage. That it wasn't even just so much about rates or impending hiking rates, but just the fact that the lack of construction for so long. I think Lawrence Young listens to the show. I've contended that for years, and I'll still say it today. There is a housing crisis today that is just solely because you can't not build homes for eight years and then expect that that's how long does it take to get healthy after that? I'll let you know. It's going to be a while. <laughs> I'll let you know when we get healthy. It's going to be a while. And he, I love, I, I came up with this analogy. I love to make this analogy uh, because it helps you realize why that's a total problem. The recession here that started in, I don't know, where do you want to draw the line? 2007? Sure. That's where it hit me. That's where I lost my job. Uh, eight years ago now. Uh, the the kids that were graduating high school eight years ago are doctors today. They're ready to buy houses. We didn't build any for them. For eight years, we didn't build all of that whole new generation of home buyers' houses. So... You want to go back full circle? How come they're living at home? It's because there's no houses. And because there's no houses, the ones there are are very expensive. Mm -hmm. So they're hunkered down saving money. That's what's happening. We've got a caller on the line. We've got Sarah from San Miguel. Morning, Sarah. Hi. Hi. Hello. How are you guys doing? Doing great. <laughs> I just want to say I, I love you guys' the show. Uh, and I pretty much everything you've been saying today, I... My husband and I, we both, um, are, we bought our first house about four years ago in San Miguel, and we bought it there because it was, you know, cheaper than yep. the rest of the Central Coast, and um, it's, you know, it's gained a little bit of equity, but um, our, where we really want to be, uh, the five cities area, is, you know, something that, you know, it's dream, but I don't know if it's ever going to happen, because the five cities so expensive, so it's really hard, um, you know, when you're, when you, you've got this goal and you're like, well, I'll just buy a house up here for, you know, lower and, um, you know, build the equity and, and work on it for, you know, five, ten years and, and then maybe we can, you know, sell it on a contingency, like you said, and, and move down to where we want to be. But even, even now, after about four years, it's still... <laughs> hasn't even gotten close to where what we would need in order to, you know. Yeah, and the bring. bad news is, is that as Santa, uh, San Miguel's going up, so is Five Cities area. So you're, you're sort of on that, you know, it's all relative kind of plight. Exactly. And that <laughs> that's a tricky thing. Um, yeah, we see quite a bit of that. But you know, depending on how you guys did the the purchase in San Miguel, sometimes. You know, just not having to have mortgage insurance or having lower mortgage insurance can make a big difference. The other bummer right. that ends up getting a lot of people just decide to stay put too. You do, you certainly don't sound like you're over fifty five, um, no. but unless you are, I'm yeah, yeah, and unless you are, you don't get to move your tax base. So. Not only is that house in Arroyo Grande going to be so much more, but the taxes are ridiculously more. And we get heartburn over the, you know, if you're paying $300 a month in property tax and all of a sudden you move, uh, sell that house from five years ago and move to a task and buy a new house where the property tax is 600 bucks a month. You're just like, wait, 
I'm right. I'm just I just doubled what I pay. I'm not getting any more services for this. You're not exactly. you're not enjoying you know your your benefit of paying more for that necessarily. But yeah, so that's a tricky thing. Maybe yeah. uh, maybe you seem to look to a relative to kick you some fat <laughs> money for a, a big yes, down payment. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see about that. But uh, we keep you know putting our nose to the grindstone and. and work hard and try to improve the, the, the property we're on so that, you know, it'll be worth a little more and, and hopefully someday. But yeah, it's tough around this area. It's definitely hard, especially if you're not like a tough doctor or a lawyer. So, <laughs> yeah. but uh, anyway, okay, thank you. I love your guys' show. So, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for calling. Okay. You <laughs> bet. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's exactly the problem we've been illustrating here for the for the majority of this show is is how difficult it is and how you have to you know owning home owning a home you you, you you there has to be a plan you don't necessarily get to live in your dream home as your first home not as a start <laughs> is it it's very difficult when you're young and you're in california and you're in a really desirable part of california but dan you touched on this a minute ago though about how long people keep loans for yeah, on average, it's about seven to ten years. In California, it tends to be more on the seven-year. Yeah, and look, cycle. here's why: um, people like Sarah. That's why you bought a house because it—that's where it you could stone. get. It was a stepping stone. It—it's it, where you are. Um, you know, and kind of, I'm in a—I'm in an interesting boat too. I mean, I own my home. I'd like to. I'd, I'd consider another home if I could find a good value. I'd, at this point where we are, I really like another bedroom. Um, however, I'd be giving up my tax base. I'd be giving up a super low interest rate. Um, and I only really need that extra bedroom for a few more years. So do you, you know, at what, how do you tackle that? And, and that lends itself to, well, yeah, when you're in that child rearing part of your life, then you need extra bedrooms. And then when they're gone, you need less bedrooms. Um, you need that a healthy housing market has some vacancy for the, to accommodate the people within the community, to have the, the freedom and desire to move around and be able to, to do those transactions without worrying about having to settle or be homeless. So in this case, I really feel like that's the, that's one of the hardest things here. And then it compounds, right? Because, well, I, I can't come forward and sell my house because I'm not confident at all that I could find the suitable replacement in the timeline that I need to. So I'm just going to have to stay put and make it work. Um, many more people, their tax base is just such that they are going to stay now. If you bought a house in 2009, 2010, 2011, that's now doubled in value. Congratulations. It's almost worthless to you to have all of that equity. The most value you have is in your super low tax rate and your really low mortgage payment. So you're going to stay put now. Um, there's so many different reasons why people are just not able willing or wanting to to get new homes right now um, so they're just stuck and all the while it means that the few people that can are competing now to pay more and this is why we see that median home value going through the roof which leads to these conversations about that lack of affordability it's a it's a whole busy little problem with a lot of facets to it and it's um, in some ways about to be compounded by when the feds come out and raise these rates. Mm -hmm. um, then the people that are tripping over themselves to compete and pay more for real estate will also be paying a higher debt service just for that opportunity to own.
Let's take the last commercial break of the show. Um, this will be a quick one, and then we'll come right back to wrap things up. Hey, you guys, welcome back. So we've been we've been talking about affordability and all these kind of things. I want to tell you about an opportunity right now that I do think has some great affordability. Um, sadly, I'm talking to people again that have down payment or uh, access to some money somehow or other for down payment. But um, there's a lot of activity lately in lot and construction part of the business. Uh, there are still infill lots around, by the way. You can find lots in... Uh, pretty much every city. Pretty much every city, yeah. Um, and you know, when you get on the on one of the services, like I I use westburke.com and do the property searches through there. Uh, I look at all of the the lots for sale, and I'll tell you, I think you can actually build a house that you'll finish with, even if you hire people and do the whole thing. Uh, most of the time, these lots are priced like they know. When these lots are being priced, they know. They work backwards from yeah. what the finished home is going to be Back into huh? the finished home, give somebody a 10% profit <laughs> yep. that can make it all go down and see it through. So you can. You can buy yourself a chunk of dirt. Like there's one in a Tascadero I saw for 160 grand that I think is an awesome lot in a great neighborhood. Um, and then you can build yourself a house. Civa Tascadero is relatively easy to work with, actually, in terms of doing, you know, planning and permits and all that kind of thing. Um, but you could build yourself a home. Um, and ultimately, those homes like that in the Tascadero, depending on the finishes and location and, you know, how much care is put into the project, um, I'd say $250, $250 a square foot for a sales price. Um, nicer ones probably going to fetch closer to 280 or 290 If you really went overboard and built something super nice, you might even be able to justify something around 300 bucks a square foot. So that being said, those lots, yeah, they back into that value, but I see this opportunity. And so I thought we might just talk a little bit about that on the show for the people that um, are curious about that. We sure. offer lot financing and, um, you know, the lot financing is intended to be pretty short term. It's not something where you can just buy yourself a, a chunk of dirt to slowly pay on and hold over time. Those aren't the kind of loans we do. Um, generally, we want you to have your lot loan um, for like a year, I'd say is probably That's the ideal. maximum term is a year. Yeah. And You've so, got to be actively working through the, the process to build. Yeah. You know, that's the idea. So you could buy yourself a lot with generally, oh, 40% down is going to be the minimum. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can do construction financing. We're able to do a construction loan that would cover most of the costs of construction. The way that it all shakes out, it turns out to be about 75% of the cost of the total project. And I would venture to say in our county, most of the time, that 25% of cost is usually covered by that down payment in the lot or close to it. So... So really, the the big first step is figuring out how to get yourself a lot that you're interested in building on that is suitable. Uh, but then backing into the numbers, you can actually build a house now, um, hiring somebody to do it and come out for the same or less than what you would be buying an existing home for. 
That's new, by the way. Yeah. Uh, a few years ago, these houses were selling for less than what their parts were worth. Uh, so now that we've sort of equalized back at the current values, it's making those construction programs um, not only more enticing, but also more available. We're seeing more lenders come out to offer them. We're seeing lenders also make their guidelines a little bit more lenient. Um, even if you're wanting to build for spec, there are even some programs like that are available. Um, so again, just kind of a, a shout out to somebody, you know, like, like Sarah who called in earlier, you know, it, maybe that's an option is sell your house. And if the math comes together where you can scrape out, um, enough equity to, to maybe acquire a lot in that five cities area and then figure out how to get a construction loan and build there where you could then, you know, with the equity that you'd build yourself plus the the money you put into the lot that you might be able to come out making this a closer to what you can afford or are used to paying than simply showing up and buying one of the available houses at the full per for profit price. Yeah, it's it's a nice opportunity now that's slowly being presented. The the financing opportunities are coming back or have come back with the lot financing and the construction financing and like you said the the costs are starting to make a little more sense. We're getting to that point of the show where we have to start winding things down. The um, part of the show where I like to tell you <laughs> why we do this show, um, and not even as much as why, but uh, we would really love to to hear from you guys this week at the office. If you've got anything that you could use some help with lending-wise, um, during that last break, Dan was just sharing me that still about a third of real estate is struggling with some sort of value issue. Um, and I just want to remind everybody that there's a lot of loan programs and there are programs that you don't even know exist. Um, and we being the experts are able to best fit you into a loan program, uh, to help accomplish your goals. And whether that means buying a lot and building a home or using one of the, the HARP programs to refinance a property that has negative equity, uh, we offer all of those programs and are, um, not only, prepared to help you, but we'd really like to help you. Our, our company culture is very focused on um, not only being great at that, but helping you understand and participate in the lending process and and knowing your closing costs and interest rate and kind of, kind of pulling that stuff back and looking under the hood. So if you think you need that kind of help, um, give us a call. Number to the offices, one number rings them all, 543-LOAN, which is 543-5626. Uh, additionally, um, you guys can go stalk us on the web. We're centralcoastlending.com. You'll find all the information there that you need. Uh, we'll be back next week with another live episode. Thanks so much for being with us today and hope you guys in, enjoy our wonderful Central Coast.